Uh, I think we face the most complex array of threats uh, that we've seen since the end of the Cold War. If you think about this, this is more about a fight for the heart of the Islamic world. Uh, it's a more of a clash within that civilization than it is a clash between civilizations, between the Islamic world and the West, let's say, as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State would like to make it. Without question, the China-U.S. relationship is the most important in the world. Uh, this is the rising power challenging the United States in a number of different ways. Uh, President Xi is stronger than, than any Chinese leader since Mao. I think what's interesting is that NATO is back to essentially what it was created to do, which is to uh, keep the Russians out. Um, Vladimir Putin has been the greatest gift to NATO since the end of the Cold War. Hi, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And for this episode, I had the honor of speaking with General David Petraeus. General Petraeus, of course, is in little need of introduction. His remarkable military career, culminating with key command positions of U.S. forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan, his time as commander of CENTCOM and as the director of the CIA, all make him uniquely suited to survey the current global operating environment and assess the future trends from the tactical level to the strategic that will define the threats the U.S. military will face in the future. That's exactly what he does in this wide-ranging, fascinating conversation. A couple notes before we get started. First, if you're enjoying the MWI podcast, please take just a second and leave us a review or give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, if you're not already following MWI on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, that's a great way to stay up to date on our new podcast episodes, articles, and research. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with General David Petraeus. General Petraeus, sir, uh, thank you very much. It's an, it's an absolute honor to be able to sit down with you and, and, and record the interview for the MWI podcast. Pleasure is mine, John. Thanks. Uh, I want to kind of talk, there's a, there are a number of topics that I'd like to kind of speak about, but I want to start with kind of maybe your assessment of uh, today's operating environment, how we've seen it evolve uh, over the past decade and a half, uh, particularly during the course of America's post 9-11 wars. And maybe if you have any sort of ideas about where you see it heading in the next sure. uh, 10 years. Well, first of all, if you set the strategic context uh, where you are in an era of great power rivalries again with the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia, uh, I think we face the most complex array of threats uh, that we've seen since the end of the Cold War. There are revisionist powers, countries that aren't satisfied with the status quo. Uh, certainly Russia, Iran, and North Korea would be on that list. And then China, I think, as well, which is both our number one trading partner and also our biggest strategic competitor and the country with whom we have the most important relationship uh, in the world. Um, we still face uh, Islamist extremists. Uh, that is a generational endeavor. Uh, in which we're engaged and we have to approach it with that 
uh, in mind. It's not the fight of a decade, much less a few years. Uh, again, it's going to be a number of decades. Uh, we face uh, increasing cyber threats, and we see cyberspace as becoming a whole new domain of warfare, and of course a very significant way in which uh, warfare has changed uh, over the course of the last 10 years in particular. Uh, we see domestic populism uh, on the rise in a number of countries in uh, Europe, our European allies, uh, indeed, I think in the United States itself. Uh, and then there's a degree of stress and strain on the rules-based international order uh, that is unique in, since the end of the Cold War as well. Uh, and that's a very, very important uh, dynamic because it comes at a time when there is seeming ambivalence at times uh, by uh, the United States as to, and our leadership as to whether or not we should continue to lead the rules-based international order, something I believe is imperative uh, because the institution, the financial institutions, the multilateral organizations, the norms and principles all established uh, in the wake of World War II in a 50-year period that saw two world wars and the wor worst economic depression in, in history. Uh, this is, these have stood the world in reasonably good stead, and I think they should be preserved as long as is possible. We willed these into existence, certainly with our allies and, and others in the wake of World War II, and it has been our effort that has generally uh, kept them intact. For all of the shortcomings, all of the uh, weaknesses, uh, all of the elements that can be criticized, uh, nonetheless, I think that these have uh, indeed served the world well. So you have all of these different challenges. That's the strategic context in which we find ourselves. Uh, and then when you look at warfare, uh, you see uh, how it has evolved with uh, much greater uh, conflict uh, in and around large population centers with enemies who realize they can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States uh, on the ground, in the air, uh, at sea, with perhaps some exceptions, uh, and we have to be ready for those. Indeed, one of the dynamics that we must recognize is the need for readiness uh, for potential conflict with a near-peer competitor. Uh, but we also see uh, the advent of hybrid warfare uh, practiced by the Russians uh, in the essentially the occupation of Crimea, uh, the use of, again, cyberspace uh, as a battlefield domain, uh, the use by terrorists of off-the-shelf uh, drones and, and other very simple technologies that can nonetheless uh, have devastating effects on the battlefield in the form of the improvised explosive devices that we encountered in such large number uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan in particular. So you see enemies that have um, learned how to uh, counter our enormous strengths uh, as the preeminent military in the world, albeit we have some readiness challenges that certainly haven't been the resources that we'd have liked to have seen uh, in some of the recent years, and de sequestration, which took some 50 more billion dollars out of the defense budget midway through the year a few years ago, uh, the effects of that are still with us. 
Um, so we've got work to do in that regard, uh, but we have to continue to evolve, needless to say, as the enemy uh, continues to evolve and as the enemy finds uh, so-called asymmetric uh, responses uh, to the strengths that we have, uh, even as we recognize that what we have done in evolving is very impressive as well. I think there's a revolution ongoing that's often overlooked, uh, and that is that we have figured out how to fight our enemies, uh, Islamist extremists, uh, on a number of battlefields uh, by training, equipping, advising, assisting, and enabling a host nation or, or other forces, rather than having to put our forces uh, on the front lines. And so that's the host nation forces in Iraq or in Afghanistan uh, or in, in, in Syria, in the case of the Syrian Defense Forces, that are doing the bulk of the fighting on the front lines and, frankly, the dying on the front lines for their uh, countries, for their causes. Um, this is very significant because I think we should take five lessons from the wars of the past 16 years, uh, in which I was privileged to command, of course, in both Iraq and Afghanistan and then in the uh, area of responsibility, uh, Central Command. The first of these is that ungoverned spaces in the Islamic world, North Africa, Central, uh, uh, Middle East, Central Asia, will be exploited by Islamist extremists. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how significant is that exploitation. The second is that we have to do something about this, and it's simply because Las Vegas rules don't apply in these areas, that what happens there doesn't stay there. Rather, the exploitation of these areas tends to spew violence, extremism, instability, and a tsunami of refugees, not just into neighboring countries, but as in the case of Syria, all the way into uh, Western Europe and our NATO allies, causing enormous domestic political challenges for them. In short, you can't admire this problem until it goes away. It's not going away. The third is that the U.S. has to lead. Now, we may get fortunate and have an ally like France uh, step up in Mali, for example, although we'll still be engaged and have to provide a variety of different means of support. But in most cases, because of the assets that we have that are enabling this revolution that I was speaking of in the advising, assisting, enabling in particular, uh, the unmanned aerial vehicles that count most, predators and reapers, which are, we can maintain over 60 orbits of these in the sky around the world, um, continuous eye in the sky, the unblinking eye as it's termed, and enabled by about 140 or 150 people uh, who don't just fly it, deal with the payload, arm it, fuel it, fix it, maintain the communication links so it can be flown remotely. Um, analyze the uh, imagery intelligence, the signals intelligence, the metadata and other intelligence that comes off this, um, then put it all together, uh, integrate it, uh, fuse it, and disseminate it. And these are hugely important. We also have precision strike and we have that industrial strength ability to fuse intelligence. Uh, I think you could take all of the drones equivalent to those, not these, not thousands of others that don't have the same capabilities of the predators and reapers of the U.S. Air Force, but you could take all of those of our partners and, and potential coalition uh, 
members and multiply times six, and I don't think you have what we have, and it's not all obviously coherent, integrated, and all the rest. So the U.S. does have to lead, but we want to have a coalition, and we should want Muslim countries in that coalition in particular. And if you think about this, this is more about a fight for the heart of the Islamic world. Uh, it's a more of a clash within that civilization than it is a clash between civilizations, between the Islamic world and the West, let's say, as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State would like to make it. The fourth lesson is that in leading, we have to ensure that there is a comprehensive campaign. Uh, the paradox here is that you cannot counter terrorists like the Islamic State uh, and Al-Qaeda with just counter-terrorist force operations. You can't drone strike or Delta Force raid your way out of this problem. It takes everything, and not just everything in the military sense in terms of clear, hold, and build, uh, train and equip, special operations forces, uh, missions. It takes politics. It takes reconciliation. It takes restoration of basic services, reconstruction of infrastructure, uh, the reestablishment of uh, education and, and hospital systems. Uh, it takes communications. It takes work in the region. All of this is essential, as it was in the surge, where the surge that mattered most was not the surge of forces. It was the surge of ideas, a comprehensive civil military campaign plan the major elements of which were 180 degrees different uh, compared to what it was that we were doing prior to the surge. So again, a comprehensive effort is necessary, but it, the, what's remarkable about what's going on now is that we have not been the ones who have had to, as we did during the surges in Iraq and Afghanistan, perform uh, so many of these different civil military uh, tasks. It is host nations that are doing much, much more of that, in addition to, of course, again, fighting uh, on the front lines. Uh, and that's hugely important because the fifth lesson is that we are going to have to sustain this for a generation. It's a generational endeavor, again, not the fight of a decade or a few years. And if you acknowledge that, then you have to have a sustained commitment and to have a sustained commitment, needless to say, it has to be sustainable, and that's measured in terms of blood uh, and in treasure. And I think what we have been able to develop uh, is actually sustainable uh, in Iraq, in Syria, in uh, Afghanistan, in gradually in Libya and uh, Somalia and, and West Africa. Again, always more work to be done. And we should recognize that we might put a stake through the heart of ISIS, the, the army that has been uh, confronted by Iraqi and Syrian forces with our, our enabling uh, efforts. Uh, we might put a stake through the heart of Baghdadi, the leader of the Islamic State, and undoubtedly will at some point. But we will not put a stake through the heart of the virtual caliphate, uh, what is out in cyberspace. That is going to uh, be there for, again, decades. Uh, we need more help from the social media platforms and the internet service providers to reduce the access to that, to make it more difficult to find, for example, Anwar al-Awlaki's sermons or other uh, video products that have proved to be so devastatingly uh, inspirational. Um, but we're never going to eliminate that completely, and we have to recognize that, again, in that domain, uh, the war is going to go on, and tragically, there will be a very small uh, element of a very large population that will still be attracted by ideas that we see as 
beyond reprehensible and barbaric, uh, but tragically will appeal to some and will inspire and instruct uh, and motivate some as well. You paint, uh, I think, uh, an accurate and a very vivid picture of a diverse set of threats, array of threats for which uh, there does require or, or could potentially require U.S. military involvement in a solution uh, from uh, terrorism through insurgency, through hybrid warfare, to uh, conventional fight with a near-peer adversary or potentially in the future a peer adversary. Uh, how does the U.S. military prepare for that? Is the answer uh, to sort of bifurcate forces, create specialized units, manned, trained, and equipped for each of these uh, potential threats, like the, for instance the new security force assistance brigades that the Army is, is now in the process of standing up? Well, I think that will be an element of what we need to do, but ultimately I think that we have to recognize, given that the U.S. military, in some ways uniquely, has to be able to fight around the world, all kinds of different environments, uh, and has to be able to fight campaigns that run up and down the spectrum of conflict, as you described, uh, everything from low-intensity, if you will, conflict, although there's nothing ever low-intensity about the guy who's uh, on the receiving end of AK-47 fire. But, but again, say Pete, for all the way from peacekeeping and uh, the, the lower end of stability operations all the way through major combat. And as I mentioned, some of that against these irregular forces, some of it against uh, the hybrid capabilities that, say, Russia has demonstrated, and uh, to be sure, the need to be able to confront a near-peer competitor uh, if, say, war breaks out on the Korean Peninsula or in the South China Sea. Again, it's the military's job to be ready for that, needless to say. And so there has to be a degree of flexibility in a large uh, element of our forces while recognizing that there should be some that certainly are specialized uh, in their organization, their training, uh, their equipping, uh, even the doctrine uh, for which they're, they're training. Uh, and so I'm a big supporter of the uh, security force assistance uh, initiative that the Army has launched. Uh, I think it, it acknowledges that uh, the best way to perform these advise, assist, and enable missions uh, is indeed by having a different organizational structure, somewhat different uh, training and, and, and readiness and preparation, uh, rather than having to take a brigade, an entire brigade combat team and then strip out a couple of thousand or more uh, of the members of that to tailor it for an advise and assist mission. Now, I think this is a great initiative, uh, and I look forward to watching it as it goes from uh, vision to now reality to ultimately employment uh, in Iraq or some other place. You spoke specifically about, you mentioned China as uh, our largest trading partner and our, our greatest strategic competitor. Uh, we recently had uh, we brought up to visit Dr. Graham Ellison, whose recent book Thucydides, about Thucydides' Trap uh, was on you know, the potential inevitability of a conflict as China rises and America declines, at least comparatively so. Um, do you think that there is an inevitability of conflict of some form? I don't think so. And actually, I don't think Graham does either, in, in truth. I mean, he, the title is indeed destined for war without a question mark. 
Um, but he then goes on to explain, I think, using historical case studies, recent historical case studies, say recent centuries, um, these 16 different cases, as I recall, but three quarters of those did result in war. When you have an established power, uh, this now would be the U.S. and a rising power, China, uh, similar to what happened when you had Sparta and, and rising Athens, and as Thucydides wrote, inevitably they went to war. Um, I mean, I, truth uh, and openness here, I am a senior fellow at the Belfer Center, uh, which Graham Allison directed uh, for a number of years, and I've actually interviewed him uh, on the stage of the 92nd Street Y here in New York uh, on his new book, which I think is absolutely superb. Uh, Without question, the China-U.S. relationship is the most important in the world uh, in a positive sense and potentially in a negative sense. Uh, this is the rising power challenging the United States in a number of different ways. Uh, President Xi is stronger than, than any Chinese leader since Mao, emboldened by the 19th Party Congress, where his uh, thought has been uh, elevated to the point of being put into the Constitution, uh, something, again, only Mao, no other uh, president had in his lifetime other than Mao. Deng Xiaoping's came after he died. Uh, and so he should feel very, very secure, um, but he obviously has to be very careful not to miscalculate, as, as do we, uh, not to get into uh, a, a crisis uh, situation uh, in which, again, there ends up in a, in a clash, which is obviously bad for both sides, while recognizing that there are going to be issues that we will have to raise as being very serious to us. Uh, certainly, uh, clamping down on North Korea is at the top of that list to get North Korea to stop the missile testing and uh, nuclear testing, short of getting a proven capability of being able to hit uh, a city in the western United States, for example. Uh, certainly there are trade issues uh, that are significant disputes, and then there's China's uh, actions in the South China Sea and the militarization of many of these islands that they have built from rocks that were below the surface of the sea uh, at high tide, and therefore should give them no, uh, any kind of uh, privilege under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and are based on a somewhat uh, uh, less than uh, firm legal footing, uh, as was established when the Philippines took China to, to court, international court, uh, and lost that case. Um, China is, has rapidly developing military capabilities. Uh, they're now spending somewhere close to a third of what it is that we spend a year with a lot lower labor costs. Uh, they're building their first uh, indigenously built aircraft carrier, uh, high-end aircraft, uh, also uh, very impressive capabilities in space, and then also so-called anti-access uh, area denial uh, capabilities uh, positioned around the South China Sea and gradually developing uh, a set of maritime bases that can enable them to get out to the, the Persian Gulf region where, of course, they uh, draw a lot of their energy resources. So China uh, clearly is a rising power. Um, it is a country that is becoming an economic uh, superpower. Obviously, its per capita income still one-fifth, one-sixth of that of 
American citizens, but growing. Um, and while we may not uh, embrace or applaud some aspects of their system, uh, the freedoms that are not present, uh, which we cherish, the public, uh, the popular participation uh, in elections and choosing leaders and, and on and on, um, China has achieved extraordinary results. Uh, and that system, I think, will be looked at by uh, other leaders around the world uh, who also uh, perhaps exercise considerable authority uh, and we'll see that as the system to uh, emulate rather than uh, our system in some cases. You in, in I want to shift gears a little bit. In, in 2003, you commanded the 101st Airborne Division uh, during uh, the very beginning of the, the war in Iraq. Uh, and, you, and you, I think quite famously, and correct me if I misquote you, but said to, to the journalist Rick Atkinson, tell me how this ends. I think a lot of people looked back at that years later and, and, and said, you know, why didn't more of us um, sort of at least acknowledge that uncertainty about the, the way forward? Um, almost 15 years on now, uh, with the conflict having evolved through multiple stages and now U.S. forces in Iraq advising uh, Iraqi security forces uh, in the fight against ISIS. How how do you see U.S. military the U.S. military's involvement in Iraq ending now? Looking forward, well, I can tell you how I hope it ends, which is essentially our goal and something we thought we'd very much uh, just about achieve. Frankly, um, a few years after the end of the surge, uh, and that is with uh, Iraqi forces securing the country and Iraqi institutions running it. Uh, the tragedy is, of course, that shortly after our final combat forces withdrew from Iraq, uh, the Iraqi Prime Minister pursued a ruinous set of highly sectarian uh, actions, uh, preferring legal charges through the court, certainly, uh, against the senior Sunni Arab leader, Vice President Tariq al-Hashmi, and his security force. Uh, then, subsequent to that, the Minister of Finance, a man, had signed a letter about saying that he had no blood on his hands. Uh, and then a prominent parliament member from uh, Sunni Arab uh, province uh, to the west of the country, Anbar. Uh, and in the wake of each of those, um, peaceful demonstrations that resulted were put down very violently by Iraqi security forces. Um, some of the more abusive leaders that I'd insisted be fired during the surge were returned to uh, positions as division commander and other very significant roles. Uh, the chain of command was essentially uh, very, very damaged by uh, a lot of micromanagement from uh, their White House. Uh, and so that when the, and then of course Al Qaeda in Iraq in the form of the Islamic State. Uh, was allowed to get back up off its stomach because the attention was elsewhere and because now the Sunni Arabs are once again feeling uh, marginalized and alienated and, and starting to think that their incentive was to oppose the new Iraq once again rather than to support it. Uh, a, a, a sentiment uh, we've been able to tr really transition from during the surge when we ultimately convinced the Sunni Arabs and then got the Iraqi government to support. 
the fact that the Sunnis should indeed have incentives to support their new country rather than to oppose it. And tragically, this allowed uh, al-Qaeda in the form of ISIS to rise back up, to go into Syria to gain a huge uh, amount of uh, additional fighters, leaders, uh, equipment, money, uh, explosives expertise, and all the rest, and fighting uh, experience, uh, and then to sweep back into Iraq and make short, order, short, short work of the uh, Iraqi security forces in the northern part of the country where I was privileged to serve with the 101st Airborne Division in the first year of the war after the fight to Baghdad, and then also in the western part to the point that they were almost knocking on the doors of Baghdad itself. This is a tragic development, uh, especially after all the sacrifice of, uh, of our forces and our Iraqi uh, partners during the surge, uh, where, again, one of the really important achievements was, uh, again, inclusive governance and a sense by all elements uh, in Iraq, uh, Sunni and Kurd as well as Shia, uh, that they all had a stake in, in the success of their new country. Uh, that unraveled, that was undone uh, some three and a half years after the end of the surge. And of course, we ultimately had to go back in, however reluctant uh, the administration may have been to do that, having withdrawn our forces before uh, and still not having a status of forces agreement. Uh, we were able to help the Iraqi security forces reconstitute, retrain, re-equip, uh, and then mount a counteroffensive. Uh, that, of course, over the course of, of uh, a couple of years now has uh, nearly defeated all of the elements of ISIS that, as I said, are best characterized as an army. Uh, and I do that because I think there will still be residual insurgent or guerrilla elements and also certainly terrorist cells with which Iraq will have to contend. And that will require a change in focus to some degree uh, from essentially fighting an army, uh, which we can help them do uh, very, very well to finding and then finishing uh, insurgent and guerrilla elements uh, as well as the remaining terrorist cells that are still in Iraq and then trying to keep them out, uh, hopefully enabled by Iraqi governance uh, that is inclusive and that is seen by the Iraqi people, all of them. Uh, again, Sunni, Shia, Kurd, Turkmen, Yazidi, Shabak, Christian, you name it and all the different tribal elements and the different political parties is seen as being representative of all Iraqis, as responsive to them within means, and as guaranteeing not just majority rule, but more importantly, minority rights. Uh, those are the conditions, I think, that are necessary to achieve for this to end the way we would like to see it end. Uh, but I will uh, acknowledge that there are other uh, scenarios that could play out, um, which would obviously not be as, as uh, positive as what I have laid out, despite all the sacrifice that this has entailed. You've mentioned uh, a couple of times our allies, specifically our NATO allies, uh, for an institution that was created for, you know, under a very particular set of circumstances uh, after, the, after the, the Second World War. What is, what is the future of NATO as, a, as a, somebody who's commanded coalition forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, and I was actually a NATO um, 
officer, certainly as a young officer in Cold War Europe, as a lieutenant and uh, back as a major. Um, I was a brigadier general in the uh, NATO stabilization force in Bosnia for a year, along with the U.S. hat and in a clandestine joint task force doing the war criminal hunt. Uh, I was a three-star uh, NATO commander in Iraq when I was also the multinational security transition command Iraq commander and then of course uh, the four-star command in Afghanistan was both NATO and US. I think what's interesting is that NATO is back to essentially what it was created to do which is to uh, keep the Russians out. Um, Vladimir Putin has been the greatest gift to NATO since the end of the Cold War. Uh, indeed after the Cold War was over, it was, NATO was a bit adrift, and it looked at out-of-area contingencies, as the term was. Um, it continued these operations in Bosnia and Kosovo and so forth, peacekeeping and, and others. Um, got heavily involved in Afghanistan, uh, needless to say, although the U.S. still provided some two-thirds of that force, uh, even though the 50,000 that came from NATO when I was privileged to command the International Security Assistance Force were very, very substantial, represented a very substantial commitment. Um, but what NATO's focus is, on, is now is shoring up uh, defenses uh, so that we can deter uh, any uh, considerations of uh, aggressive action by Russia against the three Baltic states, uh, against Poland and Eastern Europe, uh, and also providing assistance to a non-NATO country, to Ukraine, which has, of course, uh, sustained invasion by Russia in Crimea and then the southeastern part of the country, the so-called Donbass. Um, so the focus, I think, very much on uh, the defense and deterrence missions that are much more traditional uh, as we knew them in Cold War Europe have moved a good bit east and as a result of that you actually see NATO on the threshold of creating new two, two new commands uh, one of which would be a maritime command to ensure security of maritime movements uh, to reinforce uh, Europe Western and Eastern Europe uh, and then a logistical command to ensure that you can move the forces uh, a good bit further east uh, than had to be uh, done during the case of, of the Cold War era where you were essentially moving as far as the, the so-called Iron Curtain or the inner German uh, border. Uh, this is a very substantial task uh, and General Hodges, the commander of U.S. Army Europe, has been a, a big a proponent of this, as has the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. So this is quite a significant development, and that's where you see the focus. This has also led our NATO allies, uh, now with their economies recovering as well uh, after the Great Recession, uh, they are spending more as a percentage of GDP than in the past, still not by no means all of them uh, at the 2% goal, uh, or some even approaching that. But some, some heartening development there, certainly. Uh, and I think a keen awareness uh, that uh, NATO has to be uh, very supportive uh, of our allies in the Baltic states and then our allies in, in Eastern Europe. And all of those efforts are ongoing. Well, sir, thank you so much for uh, making some time to sit down with us. I really appreciate yeah. it. I think there are could have come up with lists of questions to, to, to frame our discussion further, but we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you, John. It's been a privilege to be with you, and best of luck with the Modern War Institute at West Point. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Again, remember that you can follow MWI on Twitter, like our page on Facebook, and connect with us on LinkedIn to stay up to date on our new articles, podcasts, and more. And to get in touch with us if you have feedback about any of it. Thanks again.